0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys to pray with me one more time. We need the Spirit this morning to speak, to speak through me and to speak to us. So uh, let me just ask you guys to bow. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you now needing to hear a word from you. If I, for any reason, are up here to perform for praise, Remove that from our eyes and from our ears, from my heart. Use the words that are spoken, be your words to us this morning. Give us ears to hear, Not not just the vowels and the nouns and the verbs and the words and the phrases, but to hear with spiritual ears, to be moved by the love of the Father, to be moved by how much you've done for us in spite of everything we, we've done and do. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name, is, my name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. If you don't know me, if we haven't met, uh, I'd love to, to meet you guys. Um, we are continuing. or Actually, we're not continuing. We just finished our sermon series on uh, awakening, on revival, on renewal. And here's, here's the... The, the trick this morning. Revival doesn't end because a sermon series ends. Renewal doesn't end because we stop studying about renewal. In fact, the struggle with moving from a sermon series on renewal into another sermon series, which we're continuing the study of John, is to say where's the break? Is there a break? Is there a a transition between one or the other? And the reality is there isn't. Renewal continues. The Spirit works in our lives. His work continues as we spend time in His Word, as we study His Word, as we open His Word, and as we receive Word from Him. So as we open John, the book of John chapter 18 this morning, I want you guys to keep that in the back of your head that, that just because we're not in a ser- the sermon series Awakening, that renewal is still going to happen because renewal doesn't happen in these four walls It doesn't happen in this specific town or this specific neighborhood or this specific city. It can, but it happens and begins in the hearts of his people. And so this morning, know that as we uh, read his word, as we study his word together. So John chapter 18. Uh, We believe here at Mercy Hill Church that we preach expositionally. Uh, We just got done, as I said, with that sermon series. It was topical. But even in the topics, we still walked through the scriptures and let the scriptures determine what we preach or what we say. We didn't make anything up. And so this morning, we just take off right where we left off at the end of John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, and we move into John chapter 18. And we're going to walk verse by verse through the rest of the book of John, however long it takes us, however long the Spirit leads us this morning and the coming weeks and maybe months. So let's read John 18, verses 1 through 14. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, and this is the crux of this section of scripture, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they, they led him to an ass, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So guys, we're going to jump right into to our text. Uh, if you quickly summarize, Jesus had got done. Uh, they were done in the, in the upper room. Uh, he had done teaching, the Last Supper had occurred. Uh, he, he, had to, he prayed at the end of chapter 17, and then they left. And Jesus leads his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, a familiar place. A familiar place where he had met several times before, where he had gone to pray, where he had uh, uh, gotten away even. Judas, we know, uh, turns Jesus over to be arrested he brings a, we'll call them a mob, uh, brings soldiers and uh, temple police to arrest Jesus to take Jesus away, and this begins this uh, this last moments of Jesus's life. That's the quick two minute synopsis of what we just what we just read. Now we're going to walk through it together, but what I want to do when we walk through it is I want to point out five false conclusions that we can come to pretty easily in. This section of scripture. Five false conclusions that are easy to believe because um, when I say believe, our, our actions always tell us exactly what we are believing. I'm not thinking just just uh, you know in our head here. I'm thinking our actions. So from our level of of self created stress in our lives, we're believing something. For our paralyzing fear, we're believing something. Our cancerous faithlessness, we're believing something. And our unhinged busyness, we're believing something. And, and I believe that, that these five false conclusions are somewhere in those uh, symptoms. On the other side, like steps of faith with complete assurance and confidence in the Lord's work in our lives is also the other side, the positive of what we believe. But sadly, the Western church, our church, not Mercy Hill Church, but the American church that we are a part of, believes some sort of interpretation of these false conclusions often. It shows itself by the unadulterated burnout rate of pastors, the shallow believism that doesn't prepare a follower of Jesus for suffering or for difficulty the ritualistic religiosity that demands participation at the cost of all other things, and on and on and on. That's not the gospel that Jesus preaches. That's not the gospel that Jesus displays, even in our text, these 14 verses of him getting arrested. So here's our big idea this morning. And this is the, this is the one thing that I want us to, to grab hold of. It's simple, but our big idea is Jesus is always in control. Jesus is always in control. So let's jump in. Our first false conclusion is that this is an unimportant event, or that this is just a transitional moment. Kind of like a a change of scene in a play where the lights go down, you see guys in in black t-shirts moving furniture around, you know. Kind of like that. It's not really important. It just moves us on to the next thing. Because if we know Scripture, if we know Jesus... What happens next? Jesus goes to trial. Some sort of fake trial. He gets accused. He gets judged. He goes to the cross and he dies. That's the big event, right? That's, that's, this seems like just a transitional moment. But this sets the stage for the historical moment that changes the world forever. And if we know anything... There's no unimportant moment in God's activity. There's no, we, we, we use words like monotony or mundaneness, but in reality, there's none of that in God's kingdom. Everything is important that we, are, we participate in. And as you'll see, this moment is vital for the redemptive. He leads his disciples to the garden, knowing something was going to happen. Verse 4 of our text tells us, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. So before Jesus even said, hey guys, let's go to the garden, he knew what was going to happen. And he knew he was going to a place that was familiar with Judas. Jesus not only led the disciples to the garden, but he knew what was going to happen. Not only did he know what was going to happen, but he put himself in the center of this entire exchange. He stepped forward and said, who are you looking for? knowing what the answer would be. But he placed himself there. He was in complete control of his betrayal, complete control of his arrest. He allowed it to happen. And he was in complete control of the outcome. Verse 11 tells us this. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And we'll dig into the cup a little more as we walk through this. But you see that Jesus was in complete control of this situation. So don't believe the false conclusion that that Jesus has lost all control, all hope is gone. He's just a a pawn in in this story. In the middle, the last evidence of this being false, in the middle of this tense moment... He not only shows compassion to the chief priest, because we know in the other tellings that he heals the guy's ear, he puts the ear back on, but he also corrects Peter, meaning that, that in this midst of being arrested in this midst of, and I've never been arrested, I can imagine like, just me personally, if I'm getting arrested I'm going to worry about myself, how I'm going to get out of it, I'm not going to worry about trying to correct somebody else but Jesus corrects Peter and says, no, put your sword away In the other tellings, he he rebukes Peter. doesn't just tell him to put his sword away. It may seem that this isn't that important, right? It may seem that that whether Jesus is or is not in control has no bearing on our lives today. But, But listen, Jesus willingly, out of control, willingly drank the cup that the Father had given him. And this cup is the complete and full wrath of God to, uh, towards our sin. He willingly drank it against for us. Now if nothing else sticks in your head, he willingly stepped forward and did this. Knowing what was going to happen. He is in complete control even to submit... His life to a redemptive plan. Which means for you and I. His willingness to do so. His complete control in this moment. Shows us how that he loves us even more than we think. That his love for you and I is greater than we can really grasp. And no matter the scenario that we find ourselves in. In life that he is still in control. Think about all the encounters with Jesus in Scripture. Just the familiar Bible stories, okay? Think of these, and I'll now mention some. The, women, the woman who touched his garment as, and healed her as he was walking in the crowd. What did he do? He immediately turned around, felt the power leave him, and immediately turned around and said, Who touched me? He knew the time when he was with the crowd and, 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 and the crowd was kind of getting closer and closer, and then all of a sudden Jesus disappears. Jesus was in control. The times when, when, when the, the disciples said, Jesus, he tells the disciples to feed the, the group of people that's around him, and the disciples say, Jesus, there's only two fish and some loaves of bread. We can't possibly do that. But Jesus was in complete control. The time that that Jesus walked on water and he called Peter out to walk on water with him, to join him out there. He was in complete control. And the time he, he slept during a notoriously bad storm where these fishermen came down and said, help us Jesus, save us. He's in control of every single one of these situations. So why can't he be in control of our lives or in our lives? Some of us Some of us have a hard time believing this. Some of us have a hard time believing that that's even possible. How can Jesus be in control? I think it's because some of us really have a hard time believing that he's alive at all. Asking questions like, how does a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago have any impact on my life today here in Memphis, Tennessee in 2021? He's just a character in a story. He's just like Captain Ahab or name another character like Mickey Mouse. He's not anybody important to history. But the reality is, is, if we continue reading in John or we read in other books of the Bible that we believe is true, this is God's word to us, that these are facts, this is truth, that he's not dead and he is alive. Now this, this story of Jesus has implications for you today, tomorrow and beyond. He is alive, and he died on a cross for you and for me. He drank the cup that Jesus had, that God had for him, that the Father had for him, and he didn't have to. He did it because He loved us so much. But he didn't just die. He's alive, right? He rose from the grave, as Scripture tells us. And in so doing, he eliminated the power of sin and of death forever. And he showed us his power. He showed us his control in the darkest moment of history. And he can show us that same power and that same control in our lives. And so we can sing a song about the Holy Spirit coming here because we believe that the Holy Spirit is alive, that God is alive and active In our lives, He is here this morning and He wants to show us that He loves us. He wants to show us that His love is greater than our sin. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it where your actions say that you believe it? Say that you know it with certainty. Every decision you make, everything you walk through, the way in which you walk things out shows people and yourself that you believe that he is here in you right now. That he is alive. That he's defeated and eliminated the power of sin and death. Because that's where we need to come to. That's where we need to come to an understanding that we believe that. So false conclusion number three. That these are the last moments of Jesus' freedom. That just like anybody else who gets arrested, they're no longer free, they're now in handcuffs, they're now going to jail. That these are the last moments of Jesus' freedom. And therefore, he's at the mercy of a sinful world. But here's the reality, and here's the truth, that he has total freedom. He is not confined by the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, the temple police. Matthew 26, 55 says, Jesus, in his own words, says that he could call two legions of angels to his rescue if he wanted to. His freedom is not eliminated. He has complete freedom, and in his freedom, he chooses to finish the work that the Father gave him. The work that he was sent to do. In his freedom. See, Jesus is dedicated to the love of his heavenly Father. And he's dedicated to the love of his people, of his children. And his freedom is found in his dedication and his love. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6 It says, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself as a ransom. He had the freedom to not. But in his freedom, he gave up his life. He is not bound by these chains. He's not bound by this this mob of of soldiers that come for him. He gave himself up as a ransom for all. He gave himself up so that you and I can live out a life of freedom. That because he's eliminated sin and death, the power of sin and death in our lives, that we can live a free life. Jesus says in Luke 4, Verse 18 says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This morning we are the captives and he has set us free. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 61. Written hundreds of years before he came. And he is saying, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. To set people free from the bondage of sin and death. So what does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? What does freedom in Jesus look like? Well, it kind of looks like that, that saying, dance like no one is watching. It's a little silly but but dance like no one is watching with with no worries no cares no holding back taking risks pretty regularly we have a dance party in our in our kitchen with the kids it's usually either before dinner or after dinner and I'll start dancing with the kids and then it'll take like 30 seconds and I'll start looking around to see who's watching is my family I don't dance when nobody's like... I, but, but if I dance as if nobody was watching, that changes everything. I feel free. Unburdened by the judgment of others. Unburdened by the cares around me. I can do any type of jig I want to do. It does not matter. I can fall on my face and it's okay. So what it looks like for us is thats that... Is that we can be ourselves. We can be ourselves in our weaknesses, in our failures, in our victories. We can be ourselves. It means that we can rest. That we don't have to do everything. That we can say no. It means that we can give and give and give without measuring the return. Freedom. In Jesus looks like this. It means that we can, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, we can spend to be spent in loving others. It also means that we can trust that God is at work. In the darkest, most negative period we we can think of, experience that we can think of in our heads, that God is still at work. And it means that we can live with an expectation that God is going to do something miraculous with us and around us. How many of us live in expectation of God working in us and through us? Freedom in Jesus is a good way to live. And Jesus in his freedom gave up his life so that we can be free. False conclusion number four this morning is that Jesus is powerless and has lost his power, or has lost his power, that Jesus is powerless or has lost his power. Quick observations, Jesus steps out to meet the crowd, he shows courage, bravery, some would say stupidity, whatever it may be, he steps out and says, who are you looking for? I'm right here, I didn't go hiding, I didn't go running, the guy you're looking for is me. But if you're Jesus, and us even today, if you hold the power, the unseen power, it's nothing but a step out, right? Like it didn't take anything for Jesus to step out and say, who are you looking for? I'm that guy. Torches, lanterns, weapons, all in this mob there's a debate as the size of this mob, but we've got Roman soldiers, we've got temple police, we have chief priests, servants, we have Judas, who knows who else is part of this group. But we have this group of people with, with lanterns, torches, and weapons coming for Jesus. Seems a little strange and, and very intimidating. And yet Jesus steps out and he asks them, who are you looking for? But look at verse 6, some, some odd thing, an odd thing happens. They ask, he asks them, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he. And in verse 6 says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There is still power. I'm sorry, there is power in Jesus' name and in his words. All he says is, I am he. There's debate on on whether that's a direct reference to the I Am from the Old Testament, the the title of God that only spoke in whispers, that only was was to be spoken of, of of Him, of Yahweh, God provider, God who, who rescued the people from Israel. Whatever the case may be, they fell to the ground. Just by His words. Speaking. There is power in Jesus' words. And even in these final moments of his life, he displays a power that's not of this world. Our last false conclusion is that Peter came to the rescue of Jesus. False conclusion number five. Peter came to the rescue of Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus stands out and says, Who are you looking for? Jesus is Nazareth. He says, I am he. They fall to the ground. They get up. They arrest him. Judas, in the other tellings, Jesus kisses Jesus on the te- on the cheek. It's not in, in John's, it's not in John's telling. And that's okay. Uh, and Jesus is arrested. And before Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls a sword out and bad shot, good shot, maybe he's just trying to wound the guy, I don't know, but I guess it would be his left hand, cuts the the, the right ear off of the chief priest's servant. Peter inserts himself into the scene. And I can't tell you what Peter's thinking, I can't tell you, like, here's his motivation, because that would not be uh, truthful, but if I'm in that situation, here's what I'm doing. I'm inserting myself and saying, Jesus, you need me, I'm here to help. I've got a sword, let's do this. Even though I have witnessed his words flooring people, his boldness to stand out in front of this mob with lanterns and torches and weapons, a large group nonetheless, 40 to 200 even people in this group. And Peter inserts himself says, Jesus, I, I, I got your back. Peter thought that Jesus needed him in that moment. But if Jesus is in complete control, if Jesus is powerful and has not lost his power, then Jesus doesn't need Peter in this moment, right? Jesus is giving his life up willfully. And in the midst of this, Jesus even shows compassion to the chief priest-servant and heals the man's ear. In other tellings of this same story, in Matthew and Luke and Mark. It's almost as if Peter had this, this sense of, well, if I'm not going to do it, nobody else is. <laughs> right? This like obligation that somebody's got to stand up with Jesus. He can't stand here by himself. Somebody's got to defend him. Somebody's got to stand with him. You know what? I'm going to go down with him. Let's, let's do this. And I wonder how many of us serve and, and follow Jesus out of a, a similar obligation. Or, or out of a, a false sense of, of, I have to. I have to do this. If I won't, then God's work won't get done. Listen, I, I say this with complete care and concern, but I need you to hear it. Jesus doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Right? He doesn't need me to accomplish the work that he is doing here in this story, but also in our world today. He invites us into his work. He invites us in to join him. He invites us in to be part of what he's doing he doesn't need us, especially if our motivation is fueled by an obligation or even worse, worse self-worship or pride. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. It doesn't get, you don't get very far into the, the book of Isaiah where you just start feeling like really bad because everything is negative. Like Judah is not doing well. The nation of Judah. Look at this, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly anymore. These are God's words to His people, to the nation of Judah, to the nation of Israel. They have gone over and over and over with ritual and routine and they've lost the meaning of the sacrifice. They've lost the meaning of following God. They've lost the meaning of giving of themselves and they're just doing it out of, out of obligation, no worship, no sacrifice. I have had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of well-fed beasts. There is no place for you and I to follow Jesus, to do God's work, to, join, to somehow join Him or try to join Him with the motivation of self-worship and pride. It doesn't work. Peter asserted himself and his desires to be important and to be needed in this scene. And the irony is, is this is, this is moments before his greatest need is going to be taken care of forever. His sin and our sin. What motivates your life, Christian? What is the motivation that drives you this morning see satan wants nothing more than for us to believe these false conclusions he wants nothing more for us to just have a false understanding of the importance of jesus giving himself up he wants nothing more than for us to believe that if we just try harder do more that 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 god will need us and love us more the repercussions of that such belief can be catastrophic for our lives, those who proclaim to follow Jesus. It leads to to living lives that that are powerless, that are in bondage to everybody else's needs around us, to hopelessness, to striving to be loved and needed and to never achieve or find that Because we're looking in the wrong places and in the wrong ways. There is no earning God's love in this life. He just does. He just loves us. He just loves you this morning. And if I was Peter, if I was Peter in this scenario, not only would I say, Jesus, I got this, I'm with you. But in the back of my mind I'd also be thinking Jesus is really going to appreciate this. He's going to love me even more. But living without faith living without faith that that, that God is in control at all times living without love without acknowledging and accepting, receiving and knowing the love that the Father has for you Without peace is an awful way to live. See, Jesus showed courage in this time. He showed patience. He showed compassion. He showed love. He showed peace. He submitted to a greater plan, a redemptive plan. And he showed the the, the fruit of the Spirit. He showed patience and love. And joy and peace. And, 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 and we, we lift Jesus up in, properly, right? Like Jesus is, is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. But we also lift him up as an example of how we should live. And we know that it's impossible to live like Jesus because none of us are Jesus, right? We're still sinful. We still struggle with sin, But Jesus is our example. So even in this scenario, it's possible to look at Jesus' life and say, I can live that way, or I can strive to live that way. And Jesus displays the fruit of the Spirit, the the act of, of God's love on his life, the Father's love on his life in this moment. See, Jesus is fully human in this time, fully God, too, but he's fully human. So he has the same emotions that we do. And in this moment, he's, he, he shows these qualities, these characteristics, these, these, this fruit. And the reason he does isn't just because he's God. It's because God is at work in him. And that Jesus' life is a life that is, is a reflection of the love that he has from the Father. Remember, it's been a while, but John 10, John 14, and John 17 all tell us, and, and it repeats other times in the book of John, that Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. That he only does what he sees the Father say. He only says what he, says he, he hears the Father say. He is following the Father's lead. One step at a time. He is in step with the Father. Another way to say that for you and I is that he is walking by the Spirit. He is in step with the Spirit. And Galatians 5, 16 says that we are to walk in the Spirit. So we too are to walk by the Spirit. To live by the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit. Those are all repeated in Galatians chapter 5. We have all these false conclusions that we need to, to dismiss and to believe properly. But we believe them because... Something else is at work in us. Jesus is at work in us. Not because we're, we're smarter or we can do it. Listen, we can only live this life. We can only live this way, this life that he calls us to, because he has finished the task, drank the cup, verse 11, and that we have the Spirit in us who is leading us and guiding us. The spirit that we just sang about minutes ago. Now Jesus has always been in control. He's always been in control in your life. Always been in control of my life. Always in control. We need to understand that. We need to grasp that as we strive to live a life that is dedicated to him. Honoring to him. To glorify him. See, Jesus was motivated by the Father's love. His life was was turned and maneuvered by by the love of the Father. Look at John 17. Just turn back one chapter. And we're just going to hit multiple verses that just show that that Jesus and the Father are together. They're one. They're on the same page. And it's the love of the Father that, that motivates and moves Jesus through this entire process. John 17, verse 4 and 5, it says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know it in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is coming. He just came from the Father. Jesus was in the beginning and he is now. Verse 10 and 11. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Jump over to 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. See, we too can be motivated by this same love because He loves us. Love me. With which you have loved me, maybe in them, and I in them. That same love is the love the Father has for us. Right here, right now. And because Jesus drank the cup, because he drank the, the, the complete and total wrath of God up towards our sin, for our sin, because of our sin, we can experience that love. And in turn be motivated by it. We can find rest. We can find renewal. We can find fuel by walking with a motivation and a devotion to a greater love. We can walk by the Spirit and be reminded over and over and over of the love we have in Jesus. See, this this type of life leads to freedom. It leads to power. It leads to value. It leads to faith. To contentment. Because Jesus is always in control. Jesus in his, free, in his freedom gave himself up for us. Fully and completely in control throughout the entire thing. Even in the moments of arrest, in the moments of darkness, he's still there. And he is alive today. What a savior we serve. Let me... Let's pray. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. And ask the band to come on up. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you've shown us through your son. We thank you for the love that you've shown us. That no matter what we do, you still love us. No matter how bad we are. You still love us. There's no limit to your love. There's no limit to your faithfulness. There's no limit to your forgiveness. And that same love that you love your son. That same love that that you have for him, you have for us. So Father, we thank you. Help us to understand it more to experience it more, and to live lives that reflect that love. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.